Good morning, Grace family. Yep, it's me again, and it's my privilege to come and open God's Word for you this morning. Boy, there's a lot going on in the crazy world you and I are living in. And uh, I don't know if you know anyone who uh, has been infected with this virus. I don't know if you know someone who has died because of the virus. They're telling us that uh, each of us at some point is going to know someone. And uh, all the measures that are being taken, um, my hands are getting sore from washing them all the time. I don't know about you. But uh, we're still family, uh, whether we're separated by six feet or separated in this fashion uh, with our computers and our phones and doing this in this virtual manner. We're still family. And I want you to think this morning and just uh, take a moment and give a thought. Consider yourself to be seated right here in front of me. In the place you always sit, next to the people you always sit with. And I want us just to take a moment and pray for each other. You know where you sit every Sunday. You know who sits uh, in front of you and behind you and next to you. And I want you just to take a moment, a quiet moment, and pray for those people that normally sit right around you. Maybe there's others in our church family that need our prayers this morning. Let's take a moment and focus on them. I know at least two of our members uh, are home today with fever, not feeling well, and I don't know that they have the virus. They don't know, but it's got to be a source of concern and a little panic in their hearts. Uh, So I want you to especially remember this morning and pray for Maggie, pray for Sherry, and ask for God to to bless them with his peace. So I just want to give a quiet moment, just allowing you a moment to pray. Pray for those people that normally sit right around you, that you're in close contact with on a typical Sunday. Even though we're at a distance, we're still family and and we're still together. Let's take a moment to do that, and, and then I'd like to pray as well. Father, you are the eternal, almighty God. You tell us so many times in Scripture, there's nothing too difficult for you. And we look at the circumstances around us. We look at the nature in which life happens on a day-to-day basis. And so many of us feel helpless. We feel like things are out of control. And Father, I pray this morning that you would remind us afresh that you're working all things after the counsel of your own will. That you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. Remind us afresh this morning that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we ask or think. There truly is nothing too difficult for you. And so as we open the scriptures together this morning, I pray that by your spirit you would come, you would speak, that it would be your voice that's heard rather than mine. That, Lord, through your the truth of your scripture, you would encourage our hearts and lift our spirits this morning. Remind us of who you are and all your greatness, all your glory, and all your power. And we commit our time to you this morning with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, scientists in Norway 
for whatever reason that I don't understand, decided they were going to study the swimming habits of their Norwegian wharf rats. These large rats were very common on the wharfs of Norway and were known to have swimming skills and swimming abilities, and these scientists decided to kind of put those skills to the test. And so taking a group of these wharf rats, they put them in individual vats filled with water where the rats were required to swim. They sprayed water on the rats as they swam to prevent them from floating and turning over and floating on their backs. And these rats typically swam for about 17 minutes before finally giving up and sinking below the water and, and drowning. The scientists decided a second step in their, their study was to, again, take another set of, of rats and to repeat the same experiment. And so, again, they put the rats into the vats of water, spraying them to keep them from floating. And rats, after about 16 minutes, were rescued out of those vats of water. They were taken out of the vats, dried off, returned to their cages where they were fed and cared for for several days. And after about a week, they took these same rats again and went back to the vats of water to repeat the experiment. Again, the rats were in the water, water being sprayed upon them to prevent them from floating. This time, they timed the rats and they swam, not for 17 minutes, but for 37 hours. The scientists concluded that the difference between the first set of rats and the second set that swam for 37 hours was that those second set of rats had the hope, the expectation that they would again be rescued because they'd been rescued before. They had hope for a future because of previous rescue. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you and I need to be a little bit like those Norwegian wharf rats because we have experienced God's rescue. We've experienced salvation. And we should have the confident hope, the confident expectation that God will continue to provide and to care for us. We live in a time where people lack hope. And I could have said this two months ago, before the coronavirus, because there are so many challenges that face us in our lives. And whether it's war, whether it's economic crises, whether it's physical health issues, regardless of what the challenge is, we are people who need hope. And perhaps today, more than ever, in the midst of this coronavirus, we're a people that need hope. Now, I want you to understand that when I use the word hope, I'm not using it in the sense of wishing that something might be true. I could wish that when I get home this afternoon, I would discover my wife has purchased for me a new bicycle. I could wish for that. But that's not my confidence. I could wish that when I return home this evening, that my wife will have prepared a very special ribeye steak. But that's not my confidence. And so when I'm speaking this morning about hope, I want you to understand we have hope in Jesus. He is our only source of hope. The L.A. Times this morning reported that suicide hotlines are maxed out because people lack hope. And I want you to come with me this morning to the scriptures. Come with me to that first Easter morning when Jesus brought hope to the lives of people in a very special 
and very significant way. In John chapter 20, the chapter opens with the story of the resurrection. Jesus has died. He's been crucified, that awful, horrible death. He's been placed in that tomb. But John chapter 20 opens and he's gone. He's not there. And so come with me this morning to John chapter 20. And let's look again, remind ourselves afresh of the power of our great God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now I want to stop there to point out something that I think many of us miss. We read the word dark and we think that what John is talking about is lack of sunlight. I think that is true. But I think also as we read this chapter, what I want you to capture is the thought that in John's heart and mind also, people were in the dark. His disciples had not understood what he had said when he talked about the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to rise again. They totally missed it. They were in the dark. And so when John says it was still dark, these disciples are in the dark. And they need to see the light. And in fact, if you pay attention and if you have a pen this morning, you might just underline every time you see a word that speaks of seeing or sight. If I've counted correctly, 11 times you'll find a form of the verb to see. Saw, seen, see. You'll also find twice the word look or looking. John wants us to understand that in darkness, in times of lack of understanding, in times when we can't see the truth, God is still there. He's still at work. And so it's early. It's still dark. And Mary comes and sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That, of course, is John. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away, again to their own homes. And so here's the setting for our story. Jesus has risen. The tomb is empty. He's not there. And I want you to notice first in the next section, Jesus appears to Mary. In the section that follows that, he appears to his disciples with Thomas absent. And then in the third section we're going to look at, he appears and Thomas is there. And I want you to notice how Jesus brings hope in the darkest of times. Because he appears now to Mary of Magdala. Mary Magdalene, and he brings hope to Mary in her deep despair, her sorrow, her sadness. And so beginning in verse 11, we read this. 
But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. Uncontrolled, continual sobbing is what that word means. Unrestrained. This is an emotional moment for Mary. She's come to the tomb bringing the proper spices and proper preparation to prepare Jesus' body for burial that they couldn't do before because it was the Sabbath day. Mary has come distraught, sorrowful, continual, unrestrained weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. We really don't know why she didn't recognize Jesus. I wonder sometimes if it was one of those situations where out of person out of place out of time, you, you know, her eyes are filled with tears. We don't know, but she didn't immediately recognize that it was Jesus. And she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And so Jesus encounters Mary. She doesn't recognize him right away, but one word, Mary. His care, his concern, his love for her. He meets her in her moment of darkness, her moment of deep despair. Now Mary had a very special relationship with Jesus. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She had been demon-possessed, and Jesus delivered her. Mary had walked with Jesus. It was a group of women who were at the cross. Deep despair and sadness. And Jesus meets her and gives her hope. In the midst of her sadness, in the midst of her despair, in the midst of, of being distraught. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You have a sense of sadness over this virus thing. You have a sense of discouragement. You have a sense of depression. That's why the suicide lines are so busy. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the source of hope in our times of darkness, our times of sadness, our times of despair. We can look to our government to help us. We can look to our hand sanitizer and our washing of hands to help us. We can look to our doctors and nurses and medical professionals to help us. And I'm grateful for all of them and for all that they do. And we ought to be praying for them, for God to strengthen and protect them during these times. 
I have a son in the medical field. He serves with the Navy, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And I'm not sure what all he's encountering, but I pray for him every day for God's safety and protection. We need to be grateful for these medical providers and pray for them. But our hope, our confidence is in none of those things. Yeah, we're supposed to get a $1,200 check from the government. But God's our provider. God is the one who cares. Just as Jesus cared for Mary in a very personal way. With one word, Mary. He cares for you. And he cares for me. Times are dark. Yes, there's cause to be discouraged. Loss of jobs. Loss of health. Loss of income. There's reasons. And our enemy walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he wants to cause you to lose heart. And my encouragement to you this morning is Jesus is our hope. He's where our confidence needs to be. After Jesus appeared to Mary, he now appears to, to the disciples. And they've gathered together. And so we discover in verse 19 of John chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... You see, the disciples saw Jesus captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. They saw him drug away with a large number of soldiers with torches and swords. The only disciple at the cross was John, by the way. All the rest of them had fled. They're hiding out, cowering in fear, terrified. Are these soldiers that took Jesus going to come and take them? And so here they are in this upper room. Probably the door's locked. Maybe they've got a chair shoved under the doorknob to keep the door from being open. I don't know. But they're terrified. And it's in the midst of their fear that Jesus appears. And so we read these words as Jesus comes and appears to them. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Simple words. Peace be with you. They're terrified. Peace. Jesus brings hope in the midst of terrifying fear. And so we see what Jesus does as he says, Peace be with you. In verse 20 it goes on. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. There's that word saw again, by the way. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus gives them these simple words, peace be with you. Isn't it interesting that more than 360 times in our Bibles, we find the words, be not afraid. Why is that? Why is it that the message about not being afraid is repeated so often in Scripture? Well, the answer should be pretty obvious. It's because we have a lot that causes us to be afraid. And again, around us, people are fearful. Your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, many of us are fearful. Controlled by fear. Because everything's uncertain. When do I get to go back to work? I don't know. When will I see another paycheck? 
I don't know. Will I get the coronavirus? I don't know. And so fear has entered into so many hearts. And I want you to know this morning, Jesus is our source of confident hope. He is the one to trust. He is the one to look to. Again, we can look to the government. We can look to health care providers and health care provisions of washing hands and keeping six feet distance. All of those we need to be doing, and we're grateful for all of those people involved. Our hope is in Jesus. And that was the experience of the disciples in those simple words, peace be with you. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus had been telling his disciples over and over again, multiple occasions, telling them that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and he was going to rise again. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand it. To use a phrase from our contemporary culture, that story did not fit their narrative. It didn't fit their set of expectations. It didn't fit what they expected to happen, what they wanted to happen. They didn't get it. And yet when Jesus arrives in the upper room, he doesn't come in to ridicule them for their unbelief, to to rebuke them because they didn't get it. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, I told you guys this was going to happen. I told you so. He comes and simply says, peace, be still. And I think that's part of the message he wants us to hear this morning. To close your eyes and picture Jesus and hear him say to you this morning, peace, be with you. Jesus talked a lot about peace. We talked about this, I think, in my message a couple of weeks ago. Peace I give unto you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus met Mary's need for hope in the midst of her deep sorrow. He met his disciples' need for hope in the midst of their terrifying fear. He wants to do that for you and me. This next section, now Thomas is present with the disciples. And he has told them, because they've told him uh, about Jesus. Thomas, one of the twelve, I'm in verse 24, by the way, in John 20. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, those are strong words. Thomas gets a lot of bad press for being so skeptical. And yet, truth be told, none of the disciples had any more faith than he did. None of them expected Jesus to return. Jesus showed his hands and his side to his disciples when he appeared to them before Thomas. And so Thomas is basically asking for the same thing they asked for. And so Jesus appears and now Thomas is present. In verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. Isn't that an amazing thing that Jesus could just appear? (laughs) I like that. 
They're cowering in fear. Now Thomas is there, and there's Jesus. And so Jesus appears, and again he says those special words, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, turned his eyes to Thomas, looked at Thomas, and then he said these words. Reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And so here's Thomas. He's often called Doubting Thomas. He's described as the skeptic. But I suggest he's just like all the rest, nothing different. He just wants proof. And you know, there are two kinds of skeptics in the world. I've discovered there's some skeptics that don't want to look at the proof. They're not interested. Don't show me. Don't talk to me. I don't care. There's skeptics who are willing to explore, willing to see the truth. They're willing to consider the evidence. That was Thomas. I want to see his hands. I want to see his side. And Jesus' words again, peace be still. And then to Thomas, the caring, loving Savior, here I am. Reach forth your hand. You know, there's been a lot of skeptics through time. Maybe you know a skeptic. I've got a skeptic in my family that we've been praying for for more than 50 years. Unwilling to look at evidence. One of my bicycle riding buddies, Fred, has a son-in-law. Nick won't consider evidence. Fred tries to talk with him, and he's not interested. But thank God there are skeptics who will consider the evidence, like Thomas. I think of men like Josh McDowell, who wrote that great book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He set out to disprove the Bible. He set out to disprove the resurrection, to prove that it was fallacy of fiction. And the result of his search led him to Jesus and to write that book, Evidence, that demands a verdict. Lee Strobel, in more recent years, another attorney, again set out to disprove the truth about Jesus and came to faith and wrote his great book, The Case for Christ. Skepticism isn't bad if someone's willing to consider the evidence. That was Thomas. And Jesus met him in the midst of his doubts, in the midst of his skepticism. And I want to suggest to you this morning that in the midst of this coronavirus, one of the attacks of the enemy, if not already, one of his attacks will be to cause you doubt. Where is God? Does God really exist? Does God really care? If God is good and kind and loving, why doesn't he do something? How could God allow this virus the questions go on and on and on. And there's answers for those questions, for those who seek them. But my encouragement to you this morning is to look to Jesus. He's our only hope in times of doubt. That roaring lion, the evil one, wants to come to cause your mind and your heart to doubt, to lose hope. Our hope is in Jesus this morning. And again, that's my encouragement to you. Look to Jesus. Focus on him. He is our hope. Jesus appeared to Mary. Jesus appeared to his disciples. He appeared to Thomas, giving all of them hope. 
And I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus also is the answer to hope for you and for me for our greatest need. Because, you see, the truth is our greatest need is not to be delivered from the coronavirus. Our greatest need is to be delivered from the sin virus that affects every single one of us. Many of us are going to skate through this whole coronavirus thing untouched. Many of us are going to go through it without being infected, without having any issues, any concerns. That's not true with the sin virus. It affects us all. That's why the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why the prophet Isaiah wrote those great words, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. You see, our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God, our choice to live our lives independently of him, going our own way, doing our own thing, without regard for God, without regard for his instructions to us for how to live the best life that he provides for us, his instructions in Scripture. I could point to simple things that are familiar, like the Ten Commandments, that we would have no other gods but him, that he would be first in our lives always. That we're people who don't lie or steal or cheat or commit adultery. We do all of those things in our hearts, if not in actuality. And the scripture says that the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That's why that great verse in John 3.16 is so amazingly true and amazing. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the bad news is we all stand under God's judgment, his wrath, his anger because of our disobedience. And the good news is, the good news that we celebrate this week, what's called Passion Week or Holy Week, the great news that we celebrate is that God the Father, 2,000 years ago, in his infinite wisdom in accordance with his eternal plan, that God the Father broke through human history. In the person of Jesus Christ, God becoming a man, the God-man. And Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life that none of us could ever live. And again, in God's timing, in God's plan, Jesus willingly went to that awful, horrible, wicked, painful death on a cross. Where he suffered, where he died. And paid the price for our sins. He died in my place and in your place. Taking our place. Paying the debt that we owed because of our sin. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. Forever defeating sin and death. And we're going to celebrate that next Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. And Pastor Rick's preparing a special message for us to celebrate that day. You see... Jesus is our only hope with the sin virus. I was laying in bed last night thinking about that simple thought that Jesus is our only hope. And I remembered that scene from the original first Star Wars movie where Princess Leia is leaning over R2-D2 and feeding that little disc or whatever into his machine. She's recording a message and she says the words, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are our only hope. Well, the truth of Scripture is, if our only hope is in other people, 
If our only hope is in the best efforts of our government, the best efforts of our manufacturers to create enough ventilators, to make enough masks, if our hope is settled in masks and sanitizers, and again, all these things I've mentioned three or four times already, I'm grateful for all those things, and we need to be grateful. But Jesus is our only true hope. We need to have a confident hope in him. He has a plan. He's working it out. These things are not a surprise. Things are not out of control. Our God is in control. That we have hope for the future. Life is filled with sorrow, regardless of a coronavirus. There's lots of things that cause us despair and sadness. There's many things in life that cause us fear. Many things in life that cause us to doubt. Look to Jesus. He is our source of hope. Look to him. It was 158 years ago this week that the Battle of Shiloh took place during the Civil War. It lasted over the span of two days, April 6th and April 7th, exactly this week, 158 years ago. And the records from that great battle in the Civil War tell the story of a corporal who was shot and wounded. His commanding officer, a captain, told the corporal, give me your rifle and get to the rear. He wanted that soldier to find a place of safety, find a place of security, to perhaps find some medical help back there at the rear. And so this soldier, this corporal, left his captain with his weapon and ran two, three, four hundred yards, only to encounter more fighting, more conflict. And he withdrew from there and turned to his left and ran again a few hundred yards and encountered more fighting, more battle. He turned around and ran in the opposite direction. Again, several hundred yards, more fighting, more. There. He turned around and returned to his captain and said, Captain, give me my rifle. There ain't no rear to this battle nowhere. And it feels a little bit like that this morning in the midst of our battle with this coronavirus. There's no rear in this battle nowhere. And I want you to know there is a rear, if you will, a place of safety, a place of security. Put your hope and your trust and your confidence in Jesus. Psalm 31:24. Let me leave you with these three passages. Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Be strong, take courage. Put your hope in the Lord. <clears throat> Psalm 42, verse 5 says this. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Are you having trouble praising the Lord today? Are you having trouble being thankful today? Focus today on what you're thankful for. Praise him in the midst of the battle. Put your hope and confidence in Jesus. And then this last verse, Psalm 146, verse 5. Happy, happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help whose hope 
is in Jehovah, his God. Find in the midst of this coronavirus thing, find hope in the only place that it's available, in Jesus. Turn to him and look to him. At this time of year when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it's a highlight of the year. One of the most exciting, dynamic, spectacular moments in human history celebrated. Jesus is alive. He is alive. And that's why Bill Gaither wrote the words of this great song. I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because he lives. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And Father, I pray this morning that you would use these scriptures, use these words of Jesus, peace be unto you. Speak peace and hope into the hearts and lives of each one of us. Lord, we are so weak. We are so feeble. We struggle and stumble our way along. We desperately need your help. We look to you this morning, the God of hope. We put our hope and our confidence in you. Thank you, Lord, for your promise that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. You're always present. You always care. Remind us this morning to cast our care upon you, knowing that you care for us, and to place our hope in you, our only hope in time of fear, in time of sadness, in time of doubt. Lord, we declare together this morning as a family of grace, we declare together, Jesus, you are our hope. Will you say those words with me this morning? Say it out loud now. Jesus, you are our hope. And now I want you to personalize it. My hope. Jesus, you are my hope. Trust him today because he cares for you. 